0: Good morning. This morning, I would like to take a moment and remind you that no weapon formed against us can prosper. There is simply nothing that the world or the devil can do to you unless God allows it. Now, having said that, we saw what happened to Job. God certainly allowed his suffering. I'm not going to sit here and say that we're never going to suffer or go through difficult times. That would be ridiculous. That would be incorrect, unbiblical, in fact. But I am here to tell you that as you walk in God's will, you are protected to the extent that God has ordained that you should not be harmed. Now, that doesn't mean that the martyrs of the faith haven't suffered, or even been killed. But we're going to see in our account today, in the book of Acts, that when God has a work for a man or a woman to do, they are supernaturally protected until that work is completed. So no weapon formed against you can prosper, because while the enemy will try to destroy you and stop the work of God, God's protective covering, his anointing his protection can sustain all the fiery darts of the enemy. There is simply nothing that you and I, we need to fear if we're walking in God's will. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you because you make it abundantly clear to us that you walk with us as we walk with you, as we walk before you. That is, we live our lives understanding that you reign supreme, as we walk after you, that is, as we follow your will and your word and your precepts. As we walk with you, as you walk with us, we have that sweet fellowship, that wonderful, wonderful fellowship and comfort of knowing that you stand with us in all things. And Lord, we also know that we walk in you. That is, as we walk, we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk in your strength and in your power, and no enemy can defeat us, because you are greater than any enemy that we can face. Help us to remember this truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, in chapter 22, and in verse 30, where we left off last week. Acts 22, verse 30. Now, as a recap from last week, remember, of course, that Paul had shared his faith from the steps of the Antonio fortress, and he had been at the center of what was actually a riot. The Roman authorities had gotten involved and taken Paul into protective custody. Paul has now declared his Roman citizenship with a hope to be able to continue to reach the Jews. He is relentless in his desire to reach the Jews with the gospel. And so we read in verse 30 that the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. That is exactly what Paul wanted. You need to know that. That is exactly what he wanted. He wanted the opportunity to speak to his brothers, the Jews, and specifically the Sanhedrin. Now, remember, declaring himself as a Roman citizen meant that he had certain rights. We talked about that last week. So the Romans released Paul and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 elders of Israel, to assemble. He had the right to order that, he did, and now Paul is standing before them and he's, he's going to present his case to them and try to reach them. Why was the Roman commander doing this? He needed to complete his investigation. The one thing you can say about the Roman authority at that time is they were thorough. In fact, say what you will about the brutality and the cruelty of the Romans, they were very much about preserving the peace. They, they brought a great deal of order to the barbarian world at that time, and they were relentless in maintaining order to, to a point where it was a police state, but certainly maintaining order. So they needed to find out what was going on, and that's what this is all about. They needed to understand the reason why Paul was being accused by his fellow Jews. Now, again, as a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to a fair trial under Roman law. So he's using that right to get to the place where he can share the gospel. Now, the Roman commander released Paul so he could prepare his own defense before the Sanhedrin. In a sense, Paul was well, a rabbi. Paul's a former member of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee, and in a way, he's really a lawyer, so he's going to present his own case. Paul had been held in protective custody until this matter could be settled by the Jews. He had once been a prominent member of this governing body, so they knew Paul. It had been many years, but he was well-known. And he once again saw an opportunity, as we talked about last week, to reach his brothers, the Jews. So here he is, escorted to the Sanhedrin by the commander, a Roman commander, while in protective custody. It really just doesn't get any better for Paul in terms of his wanting to reach them with the gospel. I'm going to read verses 1 through, let's see, we'll read verses 1 through 5 together, and, and we're going to see just exactly what happened. We learn in verse 1 that Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Well, those who were standing near Paul said, "You dare to insult God's high priest?" And Paul replied, "Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, "Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people." A little bit of confusion, a little bit of confusion here uh, It's kind of nice to see Paul snap like that. I don't feel so bad when I do it. Doesn't make it right. I'm not saying it does. But when I see someone say something like that, I would probably say a little worse than a whitewashed wall. But Roman justice was prevented from striking him, but not Jewish justice. They had their own laws, and they were in their own court. And apparently, this was okay. Paul wasn't very happy about it, as you can tell. Now, what he did is he testified that God had called him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles. They didn't like that very much. He had fulfilled his duty to God and had a clear conscience before men. What he's saying in verse 1 is, I have done nothing wrong. In fact, what I've done is exactly what God has called me to do. And they didn't like that. He wasn't ashamed of his ministry. He lived a devout life. Paul had nothing to be ashamed of, maybe in his past, but not in his present ministry. He was being obedient to God's call in his life to preach the gospel. Therefore, he is protected. But notice, it didn't mean he didn't get a punch in the mouth. (laughs) But he was protected. God was watching over him. But what he's doing, what Paul is doing, is challenging them to consider their own consciences before God. When you challenge someone to consider their own conscience before God, they're only going to react in one of two ways. They're going to be cut to the heart, as some of the Jews were, on the day of Pentecost and early on in the book of Acts. They're going to be cut to the heart. They're going to say, what must we do to be saved? Or they're going to punch you in the mouth. Well, maybe not physically punch you in the mouth, but they're going to try to shut you up. They're going to try to shut you down. They're going to cancel you. They're not going to want to deal with you if you appeal to their conscience. Every man, every woman, every child, every person has a conscience. God has given us a conscience. That's why you know that you're doing something wrong when you're doing it. If you do something wrong over and over and over again, you can, as Paul said, sear your conscience. That is, if your conscience was screaming at you the first time you did it, by the 100th time, it's a whisper. Ultimately, you may not hear that voice at all. This is how people get trapped in sin, whether it be substance abuse or sexual sin, People get trapped in a lifestyle of sin because they have ignored their conscience for so long that they no longer hear the voice of God speaking to them through their consciences. And even if you don't have a relationship with God, listen, you know when something's right. You know when something's wrong. We're living in a world today where the conscience has been driven out. And we have a media, social media, we have a world, a culture, that is doing its very best to blind people to what's right and what's wrong so if you hear over and over and over and over again that something is right when it's wrong that it's not evil that it's good after a while you actually start to believe it or have you noticed this is what we're dealing with today but your conscience will be challenged every single time you step into a place like this and hear the word of god Because the word of God, regardless of how seared your conscience is, the word of God does not return void. The word of God will speak to your heart because God speaks through his word. Amen? Amen. So a person who's living in sin, who has given themselves over to some sin, is still, when they come into a church or a place where the word of God is being taught, is still going to have their consciences activated. And that's why they won't come to church. Or that's why they run out in the middle of the service. That's why they no longer want to hear what we have to say. That's why at a holiday party with your family, you start to share the gospel and they either leave or go into the next room. Because they have a conscience, the Word of God activates that conscience and makes it clear that what they're doing and how they're living isn't right at all. So what does the world have to do? Pass laws that make it impossible for us to preach the Word that limits our faith and our lifestyle because they certainly don't want to see or hear the truth. And that is exactly the day in which we live. Well, Paul is saying to these people who knew better, do better. These are people who knew better, and he's saying, do better. But they didn't want to hear it. So Ananias, the high priest, was so offended by Paul that he ordered him to be struck. Perhaps Ananias realized that what Paul was saying was true, but he didn't want to hear it. So rather than unfriend him or cancel him, he had him punched in the mouth. That will shut most people up. We see in our world today, people who protest when the the culture doesn't like what they're saying are shut down. Shut up. They're, they're, They're put aside, called terrorists maybe, or whatever they need to be called in order to get them to stop saying what they're saying. Because people don't want to hear the truth. That's the world in which we live. But you'll always hear the truth here at Calvary Chapel because we... Teach and preach the word of God. Amen? Okay, so back to our account. Paul apparently unknowingly rebuked the high priest. He was right that he had been treated unjustly, but Paul's retaliation was wrong. And he knew it, especially after he realized that he had just rebuked the high priest. He even quoted the scripture that convicted him of his error and his sin. But he did warn this man. That he would incur God's judgment for his actions. God will judge you. God will strike you, right? What did he say? Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I'll explain that in just a minute. He called the priest a hypocrite. And he was right, but not right in the way he did it. He wasn't a just judge, this man. A whitewashed wall is a tomb. It's a tomb. Jesus talked about it in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-seven. It's a tomb painted to prevent ceremonial uncleanness. So it's a tomb, but it's painted really nice. On the outside, it looks like a wonderful little building, but inside are dead men's bones. It's unclean. They would paint the tombs of their ancestors to make them appear beautiful. But these tombs were full of death and uncleanness. Nothing could change the fact that they were tombs, no matter how nice they looked. And so he said, you're a whitewashed wall. The inside of these tombs is an analogy for exposing inward character. Oh, on the outside, you look like you're right with God, but you're not. These individuals did their best to project an outward appearance of righteousness, but their outward efforts had absolutely no effect on their inward character. And we see this all the time. Their inward character was full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And to Paul's credit, he called it out. However, he didn't realize that he had just rebuked the high priest. Why? Why was Paul clueless as to who he had rebuked? Well, first of all, those that had struck him were shocked that he would say such a thing, that he would openly rebuke the high priest. We show respect for the offices and authority, even when those individuals in those offices, holding those offices, don't deserve our respect. Because they hold that office, whether legitimately or illegitimately we show them due respect paul understood that and that's still true but doesn't mean that the person is a person of character or even competent it simply means that they hold an office whether legitimately or illegitimately that we respect now that was the case here paul realized that he had unknowingly rebuked the high priest he had actually violated the law why If you read 2 Corinthians and Galatians, you'll find out that Paul's eyes were not very good. He couldn't see very well at all. Of course, they had no way to correct vision at that time. So Paul was probably extremely nearsighted, probably couldn't tell who had either struck him or ordered him to be struck. Apparently, that seems to be be the case. If you look at 2 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 4, you'll see Paul talks about his eyes and the problems he had with his eyes. Some people believe that the reason he had problems with his eyes is because he was beaten so many times in the face that his eyes were actually damaged. Some believe he just had poor eyesight or that he had contracted malaria, which can affect the eyes. Whatever it was, it seems pretty clear Paul didn't see very well, which explains what happened. But I want to share something with you because, I don't know, why does this stuff make me feel so good on the inside? (sighs) There's something wrong with me. I love to see people get it. I have to admit it. I shouldn't be this way. I should be more like Jesus. But there's something about me that I love to see unrighteousness punished. I know. I'm alone. I'm the only one. that feels that way. But it's true. And, And, you know, it's interesting to note, Ananias, the high priest, He was, in fact, assassinated two years later. So what Paul said, though he said it wrong, was still correct. God did strike him. Two years later, within two years, he was struck down. Now, I know, reserve the urge to pray that for certain people in leadership. You know, reserve the urge. Because what you want to do, you actually do want to, and it goes against everything I am. You want to pray for mercy. We talked about that last week. You want to pray for them to receive God's grace. But I always have to tag my prayer like this. Lord, may they receive your grace and your mercy and come to faith. But in this life, if they're not going to, please strike them dead. That's just the way I tend to pray. So before they do any more damage or hurt people, you know, that's that's my heart. It's really not because I want to see them suffer. I just don't want to see others suffer because of them. And that, that's my heart. And And I know some of that's correct and some of that's a little bloodthirsty and I just got to deal with that. Pray for me. I can understand why Paul said what he said. So he, Paul now uses his position as a Pharisee to rally support from the Pharisees. It would be as if someone was appearing before Congress, and they were, let's say, a Democrat or a Republican, and they decided to say something that would appeal to one party over the other. And and, and I don't know that Paul was trying to create a schism, but, boy, did it really create problems. Let's read verses 6 through 10. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, and he said that a few times, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. You can see where Paul is going with this, right? He wants to get to the resurrection of Jesus, right? That's where he's going, pretty clear. But when he said this, when he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And then we read in parentheses, Luke tells us, that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And if you're ever confused about which political party or group believes in the resurrection, I always think of it this way, and I'm sure you've heard this before. The Sadducees, or Sadducee, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Now you'll never forget it, right? And now you can tell that corny joke. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are divided. They think differently. They believe differently. And we're told, as is so often the case with Paul, that there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent (laughs) that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Wow. Every time Paul tries to reach the Jews, a fight breaks out. In this particular case, I I, I feel badly. It's like Paul saying, okay, here's my angle, right? Here's what I'm going to do. I'll appeal to the Pharisees. We have a lot in common. I'll, they, they're they very uh, vigorous in their debate of believing in the resurrection. So I'll get them on my side to believe in the resurrection against the Pharisees. And then I'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They'll be open to it. He doesn't get that far. Just like last week we saw that when he started to talk about the Gentiles, the Jews were like, ah, this man, away with him. He doesn't, he's not fit to live. It's like, it's like he goes around and he steps on landmines and they blow up. And that's just the kind of, thing that was happening at that time. People were real passionate. Paul is not trying to start trouble, but sharing the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ will inevitably start trouble with people whose consciences are seared. You understand what I'm saying? If you preach the gospel to someone, you may get a violent reaction. You may see division happen around you within your family. Some may agree with you. Some may disagree. Jesus said... I didn't come to the earth to bring peace but a sword. And what he meant is that if you preach the gospel, if you're true to the truth of God's word, the result, the response will again be either people receiving it or rejecting it. And, and there's really no middle ground. So unfortunately for Paul, his attempt at trying to reach the Sanhedrin blew up in his face. These 70 men ruled over the people of Israel. And as he tries to rally support from the Pharisees, Who were crying out for national deliverance from Rome. They're the conservatives. And the Sadducees are the chief priests. They're the wealthy and powerful Roman collaborators. These people didn't have a lot in common. Paul brings these people together, and then what he has to share divides them. He declares to those of his own sect that he was persecuted for being a Pharisee. And now the Pharisees are thinking, yeah, they're on his side. See, he believed in the truth of the resurrection and the existence of spiritual beings, as did all Pharisees, while the Sadducees denied these things. I find it interesting that his father was a Pharisee. Now, we didn't know that, unless for this scripture, Paul telling us, we wouldn't have known that his his dad was a Pharisee. So he's a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, which is to say there's a legacy in his family of Pharisaic thinking. And it gives credence, it gives credibility to his argument and to his position and to his person. And it's interesting because he and his dad, they both hoped in the resurrection of the dead. Very interesting. Paul preached the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Amen? Please understand that that is the gospel. I mean, the gospel message has a lot in it about us being sinners, right? And us recognizing our need for God and for salvation. We understand Christ came and he died on the cross for our sins. But he rose again on the third day, amen? In a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating that truth here at Calvary Chapel. We understand that, you know, without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Gospel means good news. And because he rose on the third day, we will be raised one day, to spend an eternity with him. So to respond to the gospel simply means to believe these truths. And it's so simple, yet it's so controversial. You believe that Jesus came as God and man and died on the cross for your sins. You believe that he rose again on the third day, and never to die again, and ascended into heaven, where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. And then, of course, the wonderful promise, and I need an amen, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. amen. So here's the thing. That truth is what Paul is getting at. But did you notice he, he almost got there? <laughs> Have you ever almost shared the gospel? Don't you hate when that happens? You get so close, and then, you know, you think, Oh, man, I was so close. I, was, I, I had them right where I wanted them. I'm not Billy Graham, but I was close. I was, I was there. And then something happens, an interruption at work or phone call or they just kind of, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go or something happens and you think I failed. I failed. You didn't fail. You know, something we were thinking about last night, we were visiting a friend and we were having this conversation and she was saying, you know, God reaches us in his time. I'm learning that I can't rush the work of the Holy Spirit, no matter how hard I try. I want to just sort of, you know, like be like Ezekiel and say, oh, I'm free of the blood of all men. I share the gospel. Boom, hit you in the head with it. Now I know I don't have to worry. That's not how it works. Sometimes it takes years before you get the chance to fully share the gospel. Along the way, you're actually living it, but one day you hope to be given an opportunity share what I just shared about, and it's so simple, right? Christ dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead, sending into heaven, coming again to judge the living and the dead. And if you can get all the way through that and make it clear that we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we need to be saved from our sins, and if you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It's so easy to say that here in front of a friendly audience, but when I'm having a conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus, you have to be so sensitive because God may not... I know this sounds like heresy, but God may not want you to drop that bomb on them just yet. You may need to hold off and wait a little and be patient, like the seed in the ground. It has to be given time. It has to be watered. I'm not making excuses for not sharing the gospel but I'll tell you what, if you share it not in the Holy Spirit, or you rush it or you push it and you're not led by God, you could do more damage to that person's faith or ability to come to faith. So, what I do now is as I'm sharing, I'm praying. But one thing you can never go wrong with is the Word of God. So, even if you can't get to that gospel message that I just sort of went through quickly, I, what I like to do is I'll say a little something, I'll quote a little scripture. You know, whether it be like just just something, you know, what we trust in the Lord and he directs our paths. Just just little things. If I can get the scripture in their hearts, it never returns void. And it will open up their hearts to the truth of the gospel. And hopefully, and this is my prayer, some point they either show up in church, which is always so wonderful. Or they pull you aside and they say, "Uh, Tim, can I I ask you a question? I know you're a Christian. What does that mean? Hallelujah. I've been waiting three years for you to ask that question. And then you just basically just share with them, and you know it's God's timing, and you can expect good results. Amen? But that takes a a lot of patience for some of us. So Paul almost shared the gospel. I I would say almost. He got close, (laughs) closer than he had up to this point. But things didn't work out, and and, and I imagine he was very discouraged. I've been there. You've been there. We know what that feels like. But what he's saying here causes a dispute between these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the teachers of the law, who are on the side of the Pharisees, they defended Paul's right to his beliefs. They see this as an opportunity to promote their way of thinking. Yeah, we do agree. And the dispute between these men, the Pharisees and Sadducees, became increasingly violent. Now, violent means violent. That means people are pushing, people are shoving. Who knows how far it went, but this is getting physical now. And, and it's not even about Paul anymore. It's about what Paul said. I want to remind you of something. This council, the Sanhedrin, while it had been several decades since these things happened, this council had crucified Jesus. This council had stoned Stephen. This council had tried to crush the church. These were evil and wicked men. Not all, just Almost all. They were corrupt. It's hard to imagine a governing body like that, isn't it? But isn't it something? Oh, you mean a governing body that wants to tear itself apart at the expense of its citizens? I don't know. Never seen that before. But isn't it interesting that God was still working in their midst? I don't want anyone here giving up hope. How dare we give up hope? As if to say that God is not in control. Even in our nation, even in our world, especially in our lives, God is in control. Amen? Well, the commander who is responsible for Paul's safety as a Roman citizen once again has to take Paul into protective custody. If anything happens to Paul, he's held accountable. So he gets him out of there. But I want to remind you that Paul had once again, in his own mind, and we know that this is how he felt based on verse 11. He once again had failed to reach his brothers, which he said over and over again, the Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you're feeling that way? And I felt that way even recently, where I was really hoping and praying for an opportunity to share the gospel, and I got close, but it didn't quite happen. You kind of feel like you let God down. You feel like you let yourself down. You let them down, and you start to condemn yourself and think, oh, what kind of Christian am I that I can't even share the gospel? I imagine Paul was definitely feeling a little discouraged. He had shared his beliefs, and it's interesting that the Sadducees, they were less offended by Gentiles, right? So here he is at the Sanhedrin. The last time he addressed them, he mentioned Gentiles, and it all blew up. This time he doesn't do that, does he? This time he goes the opposite direction. I'm going to talk about being a conservative Jew. I'm going to talk about being a Pharisee, and it still blows up. He tried to bring the council's attention away from the Gentile issue and onto the resurrection, thinking, okay, I'll I'll, I'll try a different angle. He had hoped to at least gain the support of those on the council that shared his beliefs, and there were many, but he only succeeded in making enemies of the whole Jewish council. Now, you know, it's interesting because Jesus had told Paul in visions on multiple occasions that the Jews weren't going to listen to him. But that doesn't mean we don't try. In fact, Paul was called to try, and he did try. And we know that eventually many of these people may have come to Christ, but at this point, not going to happen, because Paul was a controversial figure. So here he is feeling this way, and then we read verse 11, and this is such a powerful scripture. It says the following night, okay, so let's say 24 hours at least, right, go by. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, the first thing I see there is that apparently Paul was feeling pretty down about what had happened, because it says the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. I imagine Paul was not real encouraged at this moment. So so what happens is the Lord stood near Paul. Has the Lord ever stood near you in a time like that? Where you just, you're feeling rotten about a lot of things. Things aren't going your way. Things aren't going the way you had hoped, the way you had prayed. And you just, you're despondent, you're discouraged, and maybe you're not even praying. Maybe you're just sitting there thinking, Lord, I don't even know anymore. And then the Lord stands near you. What does that mean? Well, I don't think, we're talking physically. I think we're talking spiritually. Have you ever sensed the Spirit of the Lord very near your heart? I have. And it's at times like this where I'm particularly sensitive to it. I'm discouraged, feeling rather pessimistic, maybe a bit cynical, and the Lord will stand near me. Maybe it's a scripture I read. Maybe it's a phone call I receive from a brother or sister. Maybe it's some circumstance that happens in my life that makes me realize that God is near. Whatever it is, It's important that we're open to the Lord standing near us during these times, or you're going to bottom out. That's exactly what happened to Paul, and this is how God encouraged him. So, the Lord had told him that despite his desire to reach the Jews, he would not succeed. We we learned that in chapter 22, verse 18. But that didn't mean that he wasn't going to try. Having been incredibly disappointed after failing to fulfill his heart's desire to reach them, the Lord stood near Paul during a time of great discouragement. Now, what the Lord did is he encouraged Paul. He acknowledged that Paul had faithfully testified about him in Jerusalem. I think Paul would disagree. I think he said, Lord, I I get to the Gentiles, they don't want to hear me anymore. I get to Pharisaic beliefs and I I never close the deal. How many people here are in sales? Anybody ever do sales? You know, have you heard the term close the deal? It's like you go through this whole thing. If you don't close the deal, it's kind of a waste of time, right? I'm sure he felt like he hadn't closed the deal, but God comes to him and says, it's okay. As you have testified, past tense, about me in Jerusalem, you're going to do the same in Rome. Now, the good thing about that is it's encouraging because... He hasn't bottomed out. God has a wonderful plan for his ministry that includes going to Rome, as we'll see in future studies, and testifying. And he's going to be a lot more successful with the Romans and the Greeks, and has been more successful with them than he's been with the Jews. But he's probably thinking, "I just, I I guess, I just can't reach the Jews." What does God say? You testified about me to them. You were faithful. They shut you down, but you were faithful. So maybe you're feeling like that this morning. Maybe you're feeling like you've been shut down and you haven't been successful. God would stand near you. He would come to you. The Lord would say and encourage you, you know, you've been faithful to testify about me, but Lord, I didn't even get to say anything. Oh, really? When's the last time we have to open our mouths to share the gospel? Do you realize that you can share the gospel and not move your lips? you realize that you're teaching by example, that you're living your life as an epistle seen and read by all men and women? you realize that how you live and how you speak and how you conduct your life is preaching the gospel? I'm not saying you don't need to use words, but I am saying that you can preach the gospel without them. So Paul had testified, even though he couldn't really get to the point where he closed the deal, he had been faithful, God recognized that and encouraged him. And in revealing that truth, he also revealed that Paul would be faithful to testify about him in Rome as well. Rome was the capital of the Gentile world. And Paul had told us in chapter 19, verse 21, that he desired to go there. He told us that. Oh, this must have been incredibly encouraging to Paul after all that had happened. And I hope and pray that you're encouraged today to know that God is working in your life. Well, let's see what happened here. In verse 12... And uh, we'll just read uh, verses 12. Actually, I want to read verses 12 through 22 because this is a narrative. It says the next morning, this is interesting, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Oh, well. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you uh, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. There's the conspiracy. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander, and the centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Well, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He must have been very young, very young man. Uh, and he said... The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him, and they have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Can God protect us? Amen? Can God protect us? convince me can god protect us what are the chances that paul's little nephew might have been in the room when these things were being discussed how is it that he just knew that information you know (laughs) what do they say little pitchers have big ears you know, it's amazing because this young man, I don't know how old he was, old enough that the commander took him by the hand, but, you know, not, not, not full grown for sure, comes in with this information, very important information that saved Paul's life. Over 40 religious zealots had vowed not to eat until they had killed Paul. They were so determined to protect their law, they were willing to break it. Sound familiar? This large group of men was evil and motivated by hate and jealousy. These zealots conspired with some of the chief priests and the elders, not all of them, some of them on the council, the Sanhedrin. I mean, many of the members of the Sanhedrin were thoroughly corrupt. These zealots were able to influence these men to assist them in this murderous plan. These people are wicked. Can you imagine politicians wanting to murder people? I don't know. It does happen, doesn't it? Well, Paul's nephew found out about this conspiracy and informed Paul and the Roman commander. And what a good thing it is that that happened, right? Remember, Paul's still in protective custody. He has access to friends and family, clearly. The Lord had revealed to Paul that he would testify about him in Rome. Or or did we miss that in verse 11? If God said Paul's going to Rome, is anything going to happen to Paul? Are they going to kill him? He can't be killed and go to Rome. I think God knew where... Paul was going to end up. Whatever God has declared about your life and for you will surely come to pass. Can I hear an amen? Because no weapon formed against you can prosper. And this is an example of that. The Lord used Paul's nephew to reveal to him what's about to take place. God has great intel. Better than the CIA or the NSA. God has great intel. And he i got to tell you something. I don't mean to spook anybody about this, uh, no pun intended. But what I do know is that when I need to know something as a leader or as a pastor, somehow I always seem to find out. I am not a gossip by nature. I don't really like drama. I don't really even want to know this stuff. So if someone comes to me or says, oh, pastor, did you hear? I said, I don't want to. Oh, did you hear? Oh, just pray for so-and-so. That's okay. We'll pray for them. I don't need to know why. Like, I I don't really like drama, okay? But isn't it interesting? Sometimes I just find stuff out. I'll hear someone talk. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was going on. And I'm like, Lord, why did you want me to know that? I find out all kinds of stuff because God's intel is something else. So whatever you're doing, knock it off. I might know. (laughs) Kidding. But it's interesting because God will let us know what's going on in the lives of those we care about. He will. And then he'll allow us to intervene if we need to. So that's what happened. God can do that kind of stuff. It's kind of cool. So Paul sends his nephew in to alert the Roman commander about this murderous plan, and the Roman commander recognized that Paul's nephew was telling him the truth. So Paul is saved because God protected him. Finally, we see in this last section, and we'll just read it, and then we'll close. uh, Let's just look at verses 23 through 30 to start. In verses 23 through 30, we find out what happened. Uh, Then, this is the commander. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. At nine tonight, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. By the way, this letter isn't entirely true, but it, it really covers... This guy's behind. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews. And they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. And I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So he's kind of washing his hands of the situation, and understandably so. By the way, the Roman commander sends his troops to Caesarea, uh, 65 miles, by the way, 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This city, Caesarea, was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. So this is a strong Roman city. It's the seat of the governors and the procurators. So this is the place where Paul will be most protected. It had a spacious harbor and its headquarters for the Roman troops in all of Palestine. So this is a very secure place. And the commander ordered a large military escort to deliver Paul safely there. We leave 200 soldiers. Does it seem like overkill? 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. I don't think these 40 guys stand a chance. But... He had them travel by night so that the Jews would not be alerted to his plan. If something happens to Paul, he's held accountable. He provided Paul even with a horse, with horses, to ensure that he got there safely. Now, he's really covering his own behind. You have to understand this. Because he wrote a letter to Governor Felix explaining the circumstances. uh, And Claudius was very careful, if you noticed, to write in such a way as to appear very noble before the governor. The governor is his authority. Remember, he had indeed rescued Paul from the Jews, but the part he left out was that the commander had violated Paul's rights before being in- informed of his citizenship. He made it sound like, well, when I I'd heard that he was a citizen, I protected him. That's not entirely true. In fact, Paul had been put in chains before being questioned. He had been ordered flogged and questioned without any evidence. So this is what we used to call a CYA memo in the corporate world. So... I hope that doesn't offend you. But he had released Paul to defend himself before the Sanhedrin. He had testified that Paul was innocent of any charges, deserving death or imprisonment, and he explained that Paul was being transferred for his own protection. Now, he ordered the Sanhedrin to present their case before the governor in Caesarea, where they would not have a chance to assassinate Paul. Is God protecting Paul? Yes. Amen. That's the point today. This morning, I want you to understand that God is more than capable of protecting you. You just need to know that. So we get to the last few verses, and I'll ask the worship team to come up. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from, and learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here, and then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Again, protected, protected. That entire military escort delivered Paul safely to Antipatris, which was between Joppa and Caesarea. Paul was protected by some of the most powerful men in Judea, and lots of them. Can God protect you? Amen. You know, the road from Jerusalem to Caesarea is about 60 miles, let's say, 40 miles to Antipatris. It brought him through mountains, susceptible to ambush. And that's why there were so many men. And then the next 20 miles was relatively safe. But Paul got there safely. They delivered the letter. And the governor agreed to hear his case. Cilicia is the place where Paul is from, and so being under his jurisdiction, he agreed to hear the case. And we'll see what happens next week. Something to keep in mind, and we'll talk about this a little more next week. Felix, who's mentioned, the governor, was a very interesting character. Paul ends up appearing before a man who was definitely an interesting character. In fact, he was the first man born a slave to become a Roman governor. How did that happen? He was freed from slavery by Caesar Nero due to the influence of his brother Pallas. It is who you know. And that's how that happened. He's also made a Roman governor due to his brother's influence. So this man, Felix, was the man that succeeded Pontius Pilate. You remember him. He was the governor of Judea. He was recalled, and this man was the replacement. He was noted by the historian Tacitus as governing like a slave. So you can imagine what that meant. He had three wives in quick succession including one of them being the granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra. This man was tied in politically. And he had been reigning corruptly for about five years at this time. So Paul is going to appear before one of the most corrupt people in the justice system. But can God protect him? Amen. And So the governor placed Paul in protective custody, and he stayed in Herod's palace (laughs) waiting for his trial. Wherever you are right now, know that God is protecting you. Know that if God can protect Paul, I don't think 40 people have sworn not to eat or drink until they kill you, not yet at least. I think God can protect us. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your hedge of protection, for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that no weapon formed against us can prosper. We thank you that you're more than capable of preserving us and protecting us until we have completed all that you have called us to do. Lord, may we respond to your gospel message and be given the opportunity to present it courageously, bravely, without fear. And may we not consider the potential consequences of being faithful to you, knowing that you are more than capable to protect us, no matter what we face, for being faithful to you. Give us your wisdom and your understanding. Lead us closer and closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.